The following sermon was delivered in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to touch on something that uh, can be kind of complicated in the Bible, and that is, what is God's view of our wealth? Um, so some years back, um, I did kind of a, I, I, this question was just really kind of bothering me and heavy on my minds, and I think it is on a lot of our minds. Whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, um, our, our money and our time and how we get resources dominates a lot of our time and thinking. You probably agree with that, right? <laughs> and so then it's, so it becomes this question, well, what does the Bible and what does God say about this? Well, it's, um, so I want to start this today by just kind of saying it's, uh, it's not that simple. So I took some time some years back and I did this kind of biblical theology of where I looked through the entire Bible and tried to understand like, what does God teach about money and wealth and how we should, uh, and, and what's his view of money and wealth? And it's, pretty complicated because you get just, there's just so many places and it, sometimes it seems like it's saying so many things. So what I wanted to do today, so I hope you guys are kind of ready. You guys got some energy today? You guys know I'm kind of high energy, so, uh, so, so get ready. Uh, get your fingers on your phones if your Bible's there or your Bible's ready because we're going to do a lot of spinning around um, because we're going to look through and I'm going to try to give you uh, a a big picture view of what God views about, about our wealth. And this is my goal today. So the first thing that I want us to be convinced of is that how we view and steward our resources is directly linked to our obedience to God and our spiritual health. So that's the first thing that I'm going to hopefully drive home so that, of course, so, that, so that we all see the importance that how we actually think about our money actually matters to God. It's not irrelevant, okay? The second thing is that I want us to see this dual nature of wealth that the Bible shows. This is a big theme, where material wealth is seen both as a good gift from God, but then also as one of the primary means, turning hearts away from God. And we all know this, right? Uh, we have famous passages, we're not even going to touch on this one, where it says, you, you cannot love both God and mammon. Right? There's this dichotomy. But then we also have this rich teaching about God's blessing and how it's to be used. So we have this kind of dual nature of possessions. And the final thing, and this is kind of the, the, the overall theme, uh, one, of the over, one of the overall themes of the Bible is that actually being too poor or too rich are both problems. In Scripture, that's a theme. Being too rich or too poor are actually both problematic. And we're going to see why. So those are our objectives. So I'm going to jump in and start right off by talking about linking our resources and our spiritual health to kind of get us uh, into the groove here. So, okay, we're going to start right here in Leviticus. So turn with me to Leviticus 26, and hopefully I'm going to keep you interested today, despite the fact that a large number of our texts actually are going to come from Leviticus. And I know if you showed up this morning and thought, oh, we're going to study Leviticus today, you probably, if I would have publicized that, we'd have half the attendance. But... uh, But there's actually some really rich stuff in Leviticus here we're going to look at. So if you turn to Leviticus 26, so I'm going to read part of this and and not probably even the whole thing. But it says, You shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or pillar, 
And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and so forth. So I'm going to kind of stop there. So you get the idea. God makes this special covenant with Israel that if they obey him and follow him, then he is going to bless them. And notice this is with material things. This is, he's going to provide for them the rain. He's going to provide for them food. And they're going to be abundantly blessed. Notice if you jump down to verse 14. It says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'm not even going to list them all. It's really bad. (laughs) It's really bad. Bad things. All the opposites of all the good things that were mentioned in the first 14 verses he lists. Because the first thing I want to start is getting in the context of if you were an Israelite, uh, this is actually, so this is, this is one area where it can get confusing. And actually out of this, if we're not careful, uh, out of this is where certain like uh, false teachings, like a prosperity gospel and that kind of thing can come from this type of idea. We live before God, he's going to make us rich. And it kind of almost seems if this is all we read, it's, it, it might be hard to believe that. That is not the overall teaching of the scripture. What I want to make clear here, though, is that there is right from the start with God's people and his covenant, a connection between how they view their material, how their material possessions come and their obedience and and relationship with God. That's the important thing. But the actual direct connection, like if you behave really well, then I'm going to bless you. That is a very unique covenant promise to Israel that we don't actually see in the Bible spread throughout as a common theme. Okay, so, so the first thing is this unique arrangement with Israel. And then what we see throughout the Old Testament is this cycle. And we all kind of know this. We see this cycle of obedience and blessing and disobedience and the removal of that blessing. Obedience and blessing, disobedience and removal. And we see this cycle over and over and over again. God blesses his people. They become lax and comfortable about it. They don't give him his due. Uh, they make idols. God removes his blessing and they have to come to repentance. He blesses them again. They go through the same kind of cycle over and over and over again. Um, and so this is kind of the context to why Israel, we get in the New Testament, we'll get there a little bit today, uh, but why Israel and, and the Jewish people and their culture, why to them, they actually did have a mentality of being poor in their minds was related to a sin issue. Even though God's covenant here is not with individuals, it's with collectively, with the nation, right? God doesn't promise any individual if you, hey, you listen to me and work hard. You, don't, you know, he doesn't promise that to every individual. It's mostly covenantal. He, he, does, he has these covenants with Abraham and Noah and so forth that, that have this covenantal piece, but it's not an individual thing. Like you behave, uh, you get good stuff. So, so dispel that right now. But there is this connection. And so the, in the Jewish people's mind, when they would see people that were poor, Often it was related in their minds. Well, I wonder what they're doing wrong. I wonder how they've been disobeying God. So there was this stigma around uh, wealth that kind of got created from that. Um, 
But that was never really God's point. God's point about the blessing was always about his covenant with his people. And we'll see that more as we go through the passages. Okay, so I'm going to move on. Okay, let's look at some other negative connections. So let's touch on some of these. Let's turn quickly over to Job 31, 24 through 28. Okay, it says, If you have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon in its splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. So again, his view, he's tying, there's a view of material possessions that's tied to uh, how we view God. I'm going to go on. Amos 6, 4 through 6. I know this is going to be like a test too for those of you who were ever in Awana to get through all these books too. It says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall and sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So again, there's this connection about like this extravagant, opulent living while ignoring the things that God is setting up before them. Okay, and then let's go to the New Testament, James 5. Oh, I skipped one, didn't I? Oh, okay, let's go back. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, 7 through 8 says, Their land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. I really like this one because it's like a poem. If you look at it, their land is filled. Their land is this. Their land is filled. And then their land is filled with idols. So there's this connection between how they viewed their wealth and what their wealth did to them. Drew them away from God. Right, the negative connotation. Okay, and then look at James 5. So that we can see this is also in the New Testament. James 5, 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, so then, then we have here like a condemnation of the rich and how they exploit their workers and the poor, right? And this is also a common theme in scripture. Okay, so are you thoroughly depressed now? I tried to do that fast. Okay. So if we stop there and we kind of look at that, there is a lot of this. It's almost like, man, who wants, who wants to have money, right? Of course, we all kind of do, but, <laughs> but when you read this, it's like, wow, like the condemnation that can come with material possessions, 
seems pretty heavy. I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about eating our flesh like fire as the corrosion of our stuff, right? Like really drastic, harsh language, okay? But that's not there all, all there is. And so I want us to get to some positive examples. So we actually have positive connections, though, between wealth and uh, spiritual well-being. Uh, look at Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Actually, through the first part of uh, chapter 6, too. It says... Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possession, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, and it goes on. So you can see the idea. It's like, and we all kind of could relate to this. God gives a gift, and then we treat that gift without appreciation, and we don't just enjoy the gifts that he's given us. That's pretty disrespectful to the gift. Right? So there's this kind of theme too about understanding like God has given you blessings if you're wealthy. If you go around acting like you don't, you're not going to enjoy them, then like, that's kind of silly. That's vanity. Right? Okay? Let's go, so that's, that's, that's actually enjoying the gifts. Then there's also, uh, like we read this morning, I'm not going to go to it again, but in 2 Corinthians 8 that Steve read, we have these connections between people and them taking their money. Now, they actually didn't even have that much. And out of the little that they have, they give. And we get this rich spiritual uh, blessing for them. This rich spiritual blessing that we get through being a conduit through God's, for God's resources into the lives of others. So we read about that. Um, then we can go on there too. In 2 Corinthians, it continues. If we go to 2 Corinthians 9, if we look at verses 6 through 15, it says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest for your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of of your contribution for them, for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpre- his inexpressible gift. So there, there's, again, this kind of idea of God blessing us and us doing a couple things, if you notice here, both rejoicing in the blessing and giving thanks to God and then pouring out those blessings into others. And we have this particular mention of uh, of God's mechanism to distribute his, his blessings to the poor 
through us. Okay? So, um, so again, and, and, and the spiritual blessings that, that, that kind of come from this. So, a particular note, and I know I'm going kind of fast, but a particular note in all of this is the Bible also, when you do this kind of broad swath, it has special attention with these aspects to the poor. Okay, and especially with related to like our spiritual responsibility as Christians and as followers of God and how we think and how we respond to the needs of the poor. So here's kind of just a taste of these. Um, I don't even know for time if I'm going to do all of them, but let's look at Psalm uh, 82, verses 3 through 4. It says, it says, To give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So we have, so it's kind of, I just picked kind of representative things. In the Psalms, we have all sorts of direct kind of commands in the Psalms about how we treat and how we, uh, how we give to the poor. And this is just permeated throughout. But when I say like just a taste here, um, I really want to make this clear. This is like so, if you read through the scriptures, you find it coming up so often that it's just, there's no way that we could pack it all in. So I'm just trying to give a brief overview. Uh, let's jump down actually to Matthew 6, 1 through 4, because I want to show you like something about this. And this is kind of consistent with the teaching of Jesus. Kind of representative with how he talks about it. So he says, when he talks about giving to the needy, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The reason I bring this up, you notice that uh, there's no actual command here to give to the needy. And it's interesting because it's just assumed. Because by this point in understanding the scriptures, the responsibility of God's people to the poor and the needy is so obvious that Christ is not even mentioning here about, well, you need to give to the needy and then here's how to do it. He's assuming you're giving to the needy. Then it's a matter of just what is your attitude and what is your heart like in that giving? So, so the spiritual kind of component there. But there's an assumption in the New Testament, and in particular in the, in, in the teachings of Christ, there's an assumption that as the people of God, we're taking care of the needy because it permeates the Scripture. Okay. And then um, James, I'm not going to go there either, actually, but uh, James has all sorts of uh, directions just kind of scattered throughout as well about our responsibilities to the, to the poor and to the needy. Okay. So I know I went through that kind of fast, but I kind of wanted to get through that first thing. So hopefully we're all kind of on the same page that, that the Bible is clear about this, that how you use your wealth and how you think of your wealth is directly connected to your spiritual health and your relationship with God. Does everybody kind of believe that? Okay. And in particular, our thought process and our treatment of the poor and the oppressed is, is of particular importance to God in those teachings. All right, so those are kind of two big, two big things. Okay, so what do we do from there? Okay, let's look at the nature of possessions then and try to get our head around what, 
How, how does God view possessions then? Because we have this strange thing, man, you got some scathing scriptures in there about being rich. Okay, some scathing scriptures about being rich. But then you also have uh, th- this idea that these are God's blessings and that we should enjoy them and that we should pass them on to others. Like, where, so where are we at? Well, okay. Let's go through kind of the, the nature, the dual nature of possessions we see. These are just some representative samples. Again, there's so many, but I picked a few stories. Let's start here. Creation and the fall. So think about this. God creates the garden. He creates the universe. He creates everything. And he says over and over again, we, we kind of know this. He says over and over again, it's good. It's good. It's good. Now, this garden, it wasn't like your simple, right, little raised little garden bed that you have in the corner of your house, right? This is a bountiful produce from God. This is an abundant thing. Adam and Eve, were they lacking anything? Absolutely not. They had everything that they ever needed. So, and this is pre-fall. So obviously, in some sense, if you look at that, they were wealthy. Very wealthy. Really, they were wealthier and happier than any of us. (laughs) And so that wasn't a negative thing. That was before the fall. God richly blessed them. And yet, their desire to be like God, their desire for more, right, leads them to sin. So it's like this tree, it looks good to eat, right? It looks good. And the issue is they, they, didn't, they did, were not content with what they had had and with, with the abundance that God had given them. So they seek more. And so then possessions, in some ways, in, in a partial way, lead their heart away from God. Okay, so we see this dual nature. God gave them all the blessings. That's good. But then th- these very wonderful blessings lead them away from God in a sense um, because they wanted more. Okay? Um, this is uh, really interesting. So I'm going to look, we want to look at this. The Exodus. Let's look first at God wants his people to have wealth. This is interesting in this passage. Let's look at this. Look at Exodus 11. Okay, Exodus 11. If we look at verses 2 through 3 first. It says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, Every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the light of his people. And if we look again at uh, chapter 12, verse 35 through 36, it kind of continues this. It says, chapter 12, verse 35. Uh, let me get it here. Yeah. The people of Israel has also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Okay, this is the most interesting plundering plan you'll probably ever read about in the scripture. They didn't have to fight. They didn't have to steal. God just said, you know what? I want you, you're going to leave the land and I want you to have wealth when you do it. And we'll get to why in a second. I want you to have wealth when you do it. So you know what? Uh, I'm going to do something supernatural. Just go ask your Egyptian neighbors. Just say, hey, you got any gold or silver I could have? And they just gave it to them. <laughs> and they took the gold and silver out of Egypt with them for free. The Egyptians gave it to them willingly because God did a supernatural act. So God, so the point here that's important to see though is, yeah, okay, there's some supernatural here, but also God wanted them to have this wealth as they left. 
They didn't plunder and steal it on their own even. God told them to do this because he wanted them to have wealth when they left. And he didn't make them steal it. He put it on the hearts of the Egyptians to just give it to them, their neighbors. Okay. So you can see we're, we're at the positive end, right? God wants the Israelites to have this wealth. Let's look at this though. What do the people do with it? Let's look at Exodus 32, 1 through 10. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, get this, this is, this is key. Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and say, they said these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Um, of course, this, yeah, this goes on. Uh, yeah, Moses says, go, God says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay, so, and then Moses pleads for them and he, he, he's merciful. But think about this. Where did those earrings and the jewelry come from? Remember, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were not a wealthy people. They wouldn't have been adorning themselves with jewels in Egypt. But they went and asked their Egyptians' neighbors, God blessed them for their, their jewelry. The Egyptians gave it to them. They wander out into the desert. And instead of remembering that and how God gave to them, they melt that very blessing down and turn it into an idol and worship it. So you kind of see what's happened there. It's like the, these possessions, the w- very wealth that God gave them is turned into this poisonous thing of making gods and worshiping them. Notice what God wanted them to do with this. We see this later. If we just go ahead to uh, chapter 35, we get the idea of now God is going to tell them, not Aaron. You know, Aaron told them, hey, you want, we're going to make this golden calf. Bring me your jewels. Well, we get this neat parallel in just a few chapters later. In chapter 35, verses 4 through 9, it says... Moses said to the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and scarlet, uh, purple, excuse me, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat hairs, tanned ram skins. You get the idea, okay? And then if we look at... uh, 20 through 22, we see again, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, 
and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting and for its service and for holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart and brought bro- uh, brooches, earrings and signet rings and ar- armlets and all sorts of gold objects. And every man dedicated an offering to the Lord. So God says, let's do this over again. Now you bring those same things that I allowed you to plunder from the Egyptians. Now we're going to melt them down. And this is the building of the tabernacle. We're going to use your resources to give you, to to bring glory to God. And to give you this mechanism to give more worship to me. That was God's intent when he had them plunder the Egyptians. He wanted them to be wealthy so that they could bring him glory and use it for that end, not to build up an idol. So we see this kind of dual possession. Okay, Um, another one, dual nature of possessions. We have this parallel uh, here in the New Testament between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. You guys probably know these stories. Let's look at them real quick. Let's go to Acts 4, 36 through 37. Okay, let me go back a little. So they said, says, uh, there was in verse 34, yeah, yeah. There was not a needy person among them, for as many who were owners of the land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we get this example of this selfless act of taking uh, this field, and he sees the needs of the fellow Christians. He sells the field and gives it. So then we have this almost similar story <laughs> in Acts 5, <laughs> where it says, yeah, right after that. Sorry, so we're, we're right there. We're just continuing on. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet, and so on and so forth. You guys know what happens. It's not good, right? So again, he, the same kind of action, but then there's a portion that's withheld. And again, what's important here is, I don't think the emphasis isn't on the portion being withheld, but on the attitude. On the attitude that he was pretending to give this whole thing and pretending to have his heart and fully devoted to God, but really he was holding himself back and this deceit. There's actually an interesting parallel here. I think I put this on here. Yeah. There's this interesting kind of parallel and hearkening back to actually uh, the Israelites in Jericho. Let's look at that real quick. Joshua chapter 6. I'm actually going to skip ahead. They, they've, they've marched around the city. They're doing their Jericho thing, right? God's going to deliver Jericho into the Israelites' hands. And he says... Uh, He says in verse 19, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Okay? So this is the command. So they're going to go in, they're going to take the city, and God says, okay, you're going to have all these things, but take these certain things, and I want these consecrated to the Lord's house. But then in verse, uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against his people. And it says in 10 through 12, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. 
Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, and so on and so forth, that it's not going to be good. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so uh, there's, this, there's this kind of neat parallel here if you hear this, like this idea like God is giving them Jericho. Like he's letting them have it. There's going to be lots of spoils. But God says, I just, I want these particular things. Okay. So this is like a good thing. God is blessing the Israelites in this moment. But then says, I want these particular things. I want them to be taken and devoted into the temple. But of course, the Israelites don't do that. It's this dual nature. It's like we're being blessed, but yet those, that gold and silver, it's turned us away. We're going to keep some for ourselves. They had lots of blessings, but they wanted more. It turned their hearts away from God, and then they even lied to God and themselves about it. Put it among their own possessions. Oh, this was, oh, this was mine. This wasn't spoils from Jericho. This was, I've had this here all the time. <laughs> right? This, this just doesn't go into that fund. Right? So, so again, this kind of this dual um, nature. Let's look at two more. Oh, yeah. And what I, the point I want to make here is that notice that all of this, does God need the gold and silver? Did God need the land being sold? Was, was it, an, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold this land and they gave proceeds. Did, I mean, wasn't that a good thing? Well, sort of, right? It's that what God cares about is our hearts, not the stuff, right? What God cared about with the Israelites wasn't even the gold and silver. It was that they, he told them, hey, let's put this in the temple and they couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't trust him. They saw that gold and silver and got too good. With Ananias and Sapphira, they, they sold the land and they couldn't just say, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to give some of this. They pretended that they were giving the whole thing. It's like connected to their heart issue. So um, look at Mary. Uh, this is uh, the sister of Martha and Judas and the contract with them with the same incident. So look at Mark 14. Mark 14, 3 through 9. This is Jesus. It says, uh, talking about Jesus, it says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at table, a woman, we learn later, this is Mary, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That's, that's a year's wages. Right, so this one thing of oil was a year's wages. So like in our terms, you know, a year's wages for a, a working person. So like think, think $55,000 a year, right? $55,000 thing of oil, right? So this is pretty extravagant. Uh, we could have sold that and given to the poor. And they were all scolding her for doing this. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, so again, like, sounds good. Like, we want to sell this to the poor, but that wasn't really the intent. I mean, if we look at John 12... We see that the leader of this criticism is actually Judas because he was the one in charge of the money. That should be kind of a 
little indication to us about the nature of wealth and its complexity, right? The disciple who was in charge of the money in the group was Judas, right? How it can draw your heart away. Judas 12, or Judas, John 12, six days before the Passover. So on this, this happens. So let's skip down. And he says, uh, yeah, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Listen, here's the explanation though. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So we get this kind of uh, important aspect again. If, if they were really interested in giving the poor, then maybe they could have this debate. But that's not, what the, that's not what the problem was. He wanted to sell the oil to put it in the purse so that he could just, it could benefit him. Right? So again, it's this attitude. Um, and then another great one is right kind of almost, almost back to back, we have these two incidents. We have the rich young ruler, Let's look at that. Let's look at Luke 18. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you have a treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And then if we look at um, chapter 19, just soon after that, 1 through 10, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on up ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come down. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And I have, if I have defrauded any, anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So you see these contrasting things. The rich young ruler says, I've done all these good things. And, and Jesus says, okay, just one thing. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Okay. And he says, I can't do that. All right. I got a lot of stuff. And it's important to me. All right. Not as important as Christ. And then you have Zacchaeus. It's really interesting. You have a guy who's done a lot of bad stuff. This is a person who says, everybody says that's a sinner. And notice, did Jesus command him to sell his possessions? That passage? No. So it's important to see this. It wasn't, Jesus was not commanding the rich young ruler to sell his possessions because that's what he's saying everybody should do. 
what he's pointing out is there's, there's two different heart issues here. He's getting at the heart issue of the rich young ruler whose possessions were keeping him from following God. Zacchaeus self-reflected on this and said, I'm going to sell half of what I have and give it to the poor. He just responded to Christ in that way just naturally. Christ didn't even have to ask. This was his kind of natural response. And so we see this kind of thing where, again, our, when God impacts our lives, how we respond, we see it play out with our material possessions. Do we become liberal and giving? Or do we allow our material possessions to be a roadblock to following Christ? Okay, again, God cares about our hearts. <laughs> God didn't ask Zacchaeus to sell the money and give to the poor. And he didn't ask the richer and ruler to sell it because he was so concerned about everybody distributing their wealth in that way. He had, there was two different heart issues going on here. Okay. So that's the dual nature of this. Okay, so I'm going to move into kind of the last section here. It takes a little while, and I, I have some kind of geeky things for you since you guys know I'm a nerd, so that's coming. All right. Okay. The final thing, though, is about this, about being rich, being too rich or too poor are both problems. Uh, it's interesting. The Bible, there's several passages. We're not going to see all of them, but I'm going to give you some themes. This is a theme throughout Scripture, that being too poor or too rich are both problems. The first thing to notice in the Scripture is that Nowhere in the Bible is poverty directly linked to piety. This is something that sometimes we've made up. That it's more pious to be poor. In fact, that's not true at all. The Bible most of the time speaks of being poor as a bad thing. Not a sin thing. Not that people have done something to put themselves in that position, but an unfortunate circumstance. It's not like the Bible is just, oh, wow, it's great. You have, it's just so wonderful that these people are poor. <laughs> the, the message of Scripture all throughout is about compassion and sympathy for people who don't have the resources to live. And it does not connect that to, their, to them having a sin issue or a spiritual issue, but it's not as if it's promoted as if something we should seek after. So we, don't, so we want to make sure we don't do that. Poverty is not the same as piety. Um, instead, what we see a lot of is, is the teaching on balance in God's kingdom. Okay, so let's look at 2 Corinthians 8 again. We're going to go a little ahead. So this is kind of starting at the very end of the passage that Steve read this morning. It says, For I do not mean that others should, or sorry, uh, yeah. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So we have this idea about the distribution of resources being redistributed among God's people through the wealthy willingly giving to the poor so that the poor have no lack. Okay, so we see this again. This is actually a reference, sorry, verse 15 is a quote from Exodus. So we're going to turn there and look at this. It's a quote from Exodus. So if we look back at where this came from, this idea, Exodus 16, verse 13, 
we get the story here about God providing manna to the people in the wilderness. So it says, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, to another, to, saw it they said to one another, What is it? That's what manna is. It's the word manna. <laughs> and for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of the Israel did so. But notice, they didn't do it exactly that way because, look, it says, they gathered some more, some less. Now, this could be the size of their tent, but, but it goes on a little bit here. And it says, but when they measured it, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Okay. There's something miraculous going on here. The people are gathering. Some are gathering a little, some are gathering a lot. But somehow when they get into their tent, they all have the right amount. So we have this example, and this is what Paul is quoting in the New Testament about us as a Christian congregation in terms of our distribution. We have some that gather a lot, a lot. We have some that gather a little. But at the end of the day, everybody has what they need. And this is God's like wealth distribution system. Okay. I'm getting played off here by my wife with the time. Okay, so I'm going to go fast here. So I'm going to go fast. This is my quick geeky thing. We're almost done. <laughs> Basic principles of an economic system. I'm going to do a little uh, God's macroeconomics here. Okay, we've got to get a little academic. Economic systems have two basic principles, is all. Ownership of property, how ownership of property is handled, and production of goods. If you look at any macroeconomic system, those are the two tenets. Who owns stuff and how do they own it? How is stuff made and distributed? So these are the three main ones. Socialism, mixed economy, and capitalism. Okay, we're kind of familiar with these, sort of. right? Okay. Well, here's what I want to make sure is clear about this. All three of these result in this. All three. All three always result in a small number of individuals controlling the vast majority of the resources. Every one of them. Every man-made economic system that's following this, these patterns, that's what they do. Okay? So this is going to offend some of you because I know capitalism is on there and a lot of you really like it. That is not God's economic system. <laughs> not. God's not a socialist. God's not a, a, a capitalist. And God is not a mix of those two or somewhere in between. God's economic system is vastly, vastly different Here's God's economic system. Ownership of property, this is what God says. I own it all. It's all mine. Production of goods, I supply it all. So God does have an economic system in the same way we look at it, and those are the key tenets of it. Okay, I'm going to speed up here a little bit. Here's a great example of it. 
is these things. The Sabbath day. God establishes you. I rested on the seventh day. You can rest. This is, this is not efficient. Right? It's more efficient to work every day. This is not efficient. God says, no, no, I'm the supplier. I say you rest. I rested. I'll supply. The Sabbath year. Okay, I'm not going to even go to this passage right away. Uh, again, for time. The Sabbath year. God said every seven years, you're to let the land rest. Now, this is really bold. Okay? In fact, this is an increasing level of trusting in God's supply. I'm going to provide you double in the sixth year so that you have enough to get through the seventh year. And you're going to let the land rest. Okay? Uh, I was going to mention this later, but I'll mention it here. It's actually unclear if Israel ever did that. Historians are not sure if that ever actually happened. And in fact, later in Leviticus, God says, yeah, you know what? If you don't let the land rest, I'm going to have, your, I'm going to have you taken over and taken into exile so that I can give the land some rest. And that's exactly what happened. The land rested when the people were taken into exile because they weren't obedient. Okay? The Jubilee economy. Now, this one's even wilder. For those of you who know about this, every seventh, seventh Sabbath years, they were supposed to have a Jubilee year. And there were some basic tenets of this. One, it was another year of rest for the, for the land. And there was this whole kind of system for how they were going to get provided for by God through it. But it got more drastic. It actually had a reset of all the farmland ownership. So, and, it, and it controlled the economy and that land was sold. And God said to do it this way. Land was sold in relationship to this year. It'd be like, oh, the Jubilee year's coming in five years. So I'm going to buy that piece of land from you. So I'm going to pay you five years worth of it because I know in the year of Jubilee, you're supposed to give it back. So it's actually this re- reversal. So once, essentially once in the lifetime of each Israeli person, it was supposed to happen where there was this kind of reset. It also had to do with selling oneself. You get so poor that you have to sell yourself into servitude or slavery, right? How much are you going to get for yourself? Depends on when the year of Jubilee is. Because in the year of Jubilee, it's forgiven. You're, you're back. Okay? So... What was the purpose, though? I do want to look at this, these three passages in Leviticus, because this is super important. Leviticus 25, 23. Leviticus 25, 23. Here's the purpose. Listen closely. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Why? For the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Let's look at 25, 42. 25.42 says, okay, this is about the servants being sold back. Why, why, why is this going to work? For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. And then look at verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 55. says, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants, for they are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do you guys get the purpose? It's really important. It's God is the God owns it all, and God supplies it all. So any economic system he wanted for Israel, he wanted it to point to those two facts: that he owns it all and he supplies it all. So it it, it, it accomplished two things: it redistributed resources more equitably. Was the idea? Of course, Israel never followed it. So this is all theoretical, right? Uh, and it reminds us who owns everything and who to trust for our supply. 
That's God's economic system. It's not about the actual economics or efficiency. It's about who God is and how we respond to what he's given us. All right. Okay. So other examples, we see this in the early church. We see people giving, right? Liberally, people saying, oh, my possessions are whoever's, right? We have these kind of things. And again, this is not me trying to promote socialism, okay? Don't take this the wrong way. It's me trying to promote the idea of what is God's message? What does he say it should look like, right? It should look like a wealth of liberality where no one has too much and no one has too little, okay? Um, Again, back to the manna. If we thought about the manna, what happens to it if they collect too much? We kind of remember this. It spoils. You can't keep it. No, God wants you to rely on him. And the general principle for all this is found, this is kind of where I'm ending, is found in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. It's the title of this slide here. And this, this is really the general principle throughout all of Scripture on wealth, a major one. If we look at uh, verse 7 through 9, it says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And here it is. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Why? Well, lest I be full or rich and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? That's what Israel did when they got rich. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. So the biblical principle is that we shouldn't desire to be too rich or too poor because why? Because it affects in our hearts how we respond to God. Okay, final application here. Notice this. There's actually some data behind this. This is secular. Uh, There's some data behind this that shows this actually works this way. Uh, Notice this is, um, you could kind of think of the graph as happiness or how satisfied you are with your life. And then on the bottom, you could look at, this is uh, income, household income. And it's interesting what happens is actually, you know, for a while, actually, you do become a little more happy as you make money, <laughs> right? Because you're not tempted to steal, you're not bitter, right? Some of these things like Proverbs talks about. But then notice what happens. You hit a certain point, and then what's going to happen to the graph as you go beyond that? It's going down, right? And so we actually see this played out in real life. There's actually like an optimal amount of household income for your happiness, and it's not, it's like middle class, right? And this is kind of the principle here. And so, so my applications are this. How are God's blessings affecting you? Are they a reminder of God's providence and love? Are they a distraction, and they, do they produce anxiety? And I hope you're thinking right now, well, even if they do, the answer is God does not want them to be. Are they a source of pride? Do you look upon others who don't have as much as you and criticize them and pump yourself up? How are they being used? Are they flowing through you to bless others? Or are they being hoarded and awaiting destruction? Think of the parable of the rich fool. Jesus says, your, your life was required of you this night. And what was he doing? He was building more barns to put his grain in. He was opening up additional CD accounts. Sorry, that was too close to home, you know. That's what I would do. Open up a CD. I got to save, right? Your life is required of you this night. It's rotting away. All right, that's it. I'm going to pray. Thank you for bearing with me on the time. God, we just, uh, 
we're first of all just thankful that you are a good God who gives us good blessings. We pray that we could just um, rejoice in those this morning and that we would learn how to enjoy your good gifts, but that your good gifts would draw us closer to you and that they would bring our hearts closer to, um, to worshiping you and not lead us away. God, protect us from that temptation. We know it's strong. We believe your word, that it is a, uh, that, that it is a strong temptation, God. And, and I, I pray that we would just keep our hearts guarded from that and that you would, you would keep our hearts guarded from that. Um, allow our blessings to flow through us into the lives of others. Give us, give us your view of the poor. I pray that we would view poor people as you view poor people and, um, and that we would uh, pour our lives uh, and our resources into them. Let's pray all these things in, in your great name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.